When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone. Today I'll be chatting with Dr. Michelle Rockwell. Michelle is a double board certified family medicine and sports medicine physician. She is married to an ER physician and they have two boys together, one and a half and three years old. She has a specific interest and expertise in breastfeeding, child health and development, prenatal fitness and postpartum maternal health. In her free time, she can be found training for a triathlon, redecorating her house, playing outside with her boys or having spontaneous dance parties in her kitchen. In today's episode, we will talk about miscarriage, specifically Michelle's experience with miscarriage. The take-home point in this episode is, you are not alone. Here we go. All right. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Hey there, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to have you today. And I know we kind of jumped around on which topic we were going to settle on, and I think this is going to resonate with so many. And today we're going to be addressing miscarriage and specifically your experience with miscarriage and how it pertained to the pandemic and the vaccine and going over some simple stats and then some community questions. And hopefully we'll answer a lot of the questions that people have. So I think we should probably open up with your experience. And I can jump in later on as well and even share mine just to kind of let everybody know that you're not alone if you're experiencing this. It is very common. And hopefully if somebody listening has had a miscarriage, they can feel comfort in our stories. So I think we could open up with that and then kind of go from there and see what happens. Yeah. So first of all, I think it's pretty rare even to tell people you're pregnant as early as I told people I was pregnant. And people have questions about this all the time, like, when should I tell my friends I'm pregnant? When should I announce it on social media? When should I tell my family, et cetera? And, you know, I like to say, of course, that's up to you, 100%. A lot of people say they want to wait until 12 weeks or 14 weeks when it's, quote, unquote, safe um, and that the risk of miscarriage is low. But personally, for me, I chose to tell people super early. I mean, I literally got a positive pregnancy test at like four weeks and told everybody, (laughs) absolutely everybody, because, well, one, I was super excited and I wanted, you know, everyone else to share my excitement. And, you know, I did know that there was a risk of miscarriage, especially with my age. I'm turning 39 tomorrow. Ah, happy Um, early birthday. (laughs) Thank you. But, you know, I also knew that if things did not go the way that I hoped that they were going to, that I would want the support of my friends and family and my community. So that's one reason I decided to. And I don't think, you know, either way is right or wrong, but I certainly see both sides for it. It is really hard to tell everybody that you lost a baby. But I think it's also really helpful for other people to hear other people experiencing pregnancy loss because they know that they're not alone and can kind of seek out ways to help each other or support each other. So that's kind of like my preface to all of this. Yeah, I really love that because first of all, it is, it's so uncommon for people to say they're pregnant early on, but it's like, 
where do you get that support when you need it in case something does happen, you know? And right. so I do think looking back, I did tell a lot of closer friends and family because I was like, if something goes wrong here, like I want that support from those people, you know? And so whatever you feel comfortable with, definitely. But I, I really do like that you said that. Yeah. And I can't even tell you how many messages I got after, you know, I told people about my pregnancy on Instagram saying, oh my gosh, I'm going through the exact same thing, but I haven't told anybody. And so I'm kind of, you know, just suffering alone and, you know, it's horrible. So I think that's just kind of one side of it. But so yeah, I was pregnant in October and went to my six week ultrasound and the baby was measuring two weeks behind, which the ultrasonographer was like, this is probably fine. It's probably normal. Maybe, you know, you're off on your dates, but I personally knew that I couldn't have been off. My husband was literally out of town for a month, so (laughs) there was only one day that this could have occurred, (laughs) so my dates were very accurate. So first, she did a transabdominal ultrasound, and we were measuring two weeks behind, and then she did a transvaginal, hoping to see a heartbeat since it was six weeks, and there's a good chance that you could see a heartbeat at six weeks transvaginally, and there was no heartbeat. And the measurement was still the same. So basically, I had to wait two more weeks, not knowing, but really in my heart, knowing that the pregnancy had already ended to get another ultrasound. Now, the crazy thing is I ended up with COVID (laughs) (laughs) right before the second ultrasound. And they really didn't even want to do the ultrasound because they didn't want me coming in there. So I had to beg them to do my ultrasound, which was just a nightmare in itself. And really gave me so much sympathy for people with COVID who are struggling to get their normal medical care. Because, you know, even for me as a physician, it was a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but basically the ultrasound confirmed, you know, what we already knew. And there was no heartbeat and the baby still hadn't grown. Yeah, so that was my first miscarriage. And actually, I shouldn't say that because I did have an ectopic pregnancy in the past. But this was my first general miscarriage. Yeah. So what did you end up doing for a medical treatment? So uh, they offered me three options, which, you know, what most people would be offered. One is expectant management to just kind of wait and see what happens. And hopefully my body would just pass the pregnancy on its own within the next several weeks. Second was medical management with Cytotec, which they said should help the baby pass within about 24 hours. And then the third option I was given was to have a DNC, which is surgical management, where I would go into the OR and they would basically suction out the baby and all the products of conception, and it would be done basically immediately. So I really had a hard time deciding because of COVID, like life was just crazy. I didn't want to end up like hemorrhaging at home and then having to go into the ER. So I think that that played a big factor in my decision. Part of me wanted to just be done with it and go get the DNC right away because then it would just be over. I wouldn't have to, you know, sit at home bleeding on the toilet, not knowing if the baby had passed or not. Like I would know that it was over. But the thought of going into the OR also was really scary and also expensive for me because my insurance is crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I know, uh, right? <laughs> get me started. Uh. Yes. So I decided to go the medical management route and I took Cytotec and everything happened exactly as they said it would. I took the medicine, I inserted it vaginally, laid down for an hour 
you know, a couple of hours later, I started bleeding. It was really heavy. I mean, I was just sitting on the toilet and blood was falling out of me and clots and every, it was just, it was awful. Every time I thought I could stand up, it would just gush out again. I mean, my kids were at home. Thank goodness my husband was also at home, but really it was awful. Yeah. It was awful. Yeah. So much cramping. And I feel like as a physician, I thought I would know like mm-hmm. when the baby passed, like I thought for sure I would like look down on the toilet and say, oh, there, there it is. And I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I just know that the bleeding at one point slowed down and it was kind of like a regular period. And I assumed that that was the end. But unfortunately, it wasn't. (laughs) So I just kept bleeding and bleeding, and the bleeding didn't stop for a couple of weeks afterwards. And ultimately, I had to get a DNC. What a bummer. And it's hard, like, looking in hindsight, like, do I wish I had gotten the DNC to begin with? Sure. I mean, it would be nice to have not, you know, bled for six weeks straight. Um, But hindsight's always better, you know. In 70 to 90% of cases, medical management works. So to avoid going to the OR, I think that that's fantastic. But I also completely understand just wanting to go get it done, know that it's over and that all the products of conception are gone. And then you can kind of move on with your recovery, physical and mental. Yeah. Now, do you want to kind of go over, I mean, obviously you just went over the three options that you were given and just for the people listening, there are are different types of miscarriages. So it sounds like the one that you had, Michelle, was more or less a missed miscarriage, meaning your body didn't recognize that it wasn't growing. And so it kept like probably producing HCG and therefore you never started bleeding and kind of passing it on your own. How, how many weeks do you think you were when, was it eight weeks you said? So the baby stopped growing at six weeks. And then when did you start that cytotech? That was at eight weeks. Okay. And so they recommend not to do cytotech past 10 weeks. Okay. It's less likely to work. I see. Gotcha. And so I think that you probably covered all of them. So you were saying after 10 weeks, you're not going to use something like a cytotech. Your really only option Mm -hmm. is a DNC at that point, right? You could still pursue expectant management and wait for your body to pass the baby on its own, like basically deliver. Yeah. But Cytotech is less likely to help in that case, I should say. Gotcha. So I miscarried three times total. And my first was in between baby one and baby two. And all of my miscarriages were in that five to six week range. So I actually was able to successfully you know, my body was able to successfully abort in each individual case. We still don't know why those might have happened. I know that the two that I had before I was pregnant with my fourth were back to back. And my periods then were very, after my third was born, my periods came back very strange. I had very short periods, very short luteal phases. And like they were 20 days long. So I don't think that the baby had enough time to attach and like start to grow. And so I think my body literally just started shedding, shedding the lining. And honestly, that's like my whole thought process. But of course, it could have been a million other things because miscarriages are very common. And so mine were both very early on. So, you know, miscarriages come in a variety of different types. Your experience can vary very differently from somebody else's. But 
it doesn't vary and that you're not alone. It happens to a lot of different people. Do you have the stats, Michelle, on it's one in four, right? Yeah. So it's a very simplified stat that people throw out like one in four because there are so many things that play into it as far as personal risk. But yes, in general, one in four is the statistic that's used. Yeah. I know we had a couple of questions in the community Q&A that said, you know, how can I prevent a miscarriage? Like they're preparing to get pregnant. Oh, well, how can I prevent miscarriage? Or, you know, once I am pregnant, is there anything I can do once my body starts to miscarry? Do you have anything that you can tell us on that? Yeah. Well, once your body starts to miscarry, then no, there's nothing that you could do. And that's the unfortunate thing. But when you find out you're pregnant, or even before, when you know you're going to try and conceive, there are definitely things that you could do to prevent, you know, the risk or to lower your risk of miscarriage, I should say. So, you know, one is obviously just to be in your best physical health, right? So, you know, to make sure that your weight is where it should be to avoid any toxins, to stop drinking alcohol, obviously to not do drugs, to not smoke. Other things like certain medical conditions, like diabetes, hypertension, you want to make sure that if you have those chronic issues, that those things are well under control. But those are pretty much the best things that you could do. Yeah, I think I'll add in too, you know, it's important, obviously, to maintain your physical health, your routine physical health. So by that, I mean, you know, we do, we're like, oh, we're young, we're in our 30s, or we're in our late 20s. But here's the thing, making sure that you have your like routine health exams is so important. Obviously, this is like something that you as a family medicine physician probably recommend to everybody. And as postpartum, I'm always looking out for thyroid issues. Those can be really common postpartum. And so I do always tell women, always mention this to your provider, say, you know, would it be helpful in my routine blood work to add in thyroid? Most will, you know, but that's something that goes unnoticed for a long time. And, you know, your OB won't routinely check that. And so, you know, making sure you go to that yearly routine checkup and making sure your thyroid levels are normal, because if your thyroid is off, that messes with a lot of important hormones and things going on that help that baby to grow and, you know, help your body to recognize that something is going on and that you need to even out different levels within your body. And sometimes that won't happen if you have a hyperthyroid or hypothyroid. So that I thought was really important. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you know, and I didn't realize how incredibly common thyroid issues were until I talked to all my friends, you know, that have had issues. And I actually have a good friend now who's dealing with some serious thyroid issues and it caused a few miscarriages for her. And so it's just something that I think is often overlooked. And I actually have that on like a list of my podcast episodes. I want to just concentrate on your thyroid health, you know, postpartum. I think it's really important. Yeah. So I think like that kind of brings us to like the top causes of miscarriage. Cause if you can kind of prevent some of these causes, can you actually prevent the miscarriage to begin with? So the very top cause of miscarriage is a genetic abnormality. And basically there's a non-viable embryo and there is nothing that you could do in this case. The baby was just not going to make it. But age obviously plays a huge role in it. Like when I was looking up the statistics, I personally calculated my statistics. And for me, my risk of miscarriage being 39 tomorrow (laughs) begins at 29%. And basically every day it drops about 1% a day. And then by week 14, my risk is only 1%. But then for most people, by week five, it's 21% 
week six to seven, it's 5%. And week eight to 13, it's two to 4%. And then beyond that, it's less than 1%. So the calculator that I used brought into consideration whether or not I've had a miscarriage before, my age, and my height and weight, which are just, you know, several factors. Obviously, there are many more factors that can go into your risk of miscarriage. But I think that using a calculator like that, if you want to know your numbers, is better than just saying, oh, you know, for the general population, it's this number. Because if you've had two or three miscarriages, actually beyond three, then your risk is higher. Um, And if you're older, your risk is higher. So those are really important factors. Medical conditions like we already talked about, especially clotting disorders and endocrine disorders like you mentioned, environmental exposures, like we said, like smoking and alcohol, and especially stimulants, including caffeine. So if you're trying to conceive, you should definitely watch the amount of caffeine that you're consuming. Infections like bacterial vaginosis or chlamydia or gonorrhea. And then obesity, stress, (laughs) and previous elective abortions. So if you've had like a DNC before, then there could possibly be some scarring in your uterus. And then there can also be just physical structural factors such as adhesions or malformations of your uterus or cervix. So those are all things that you need to consider. It's a lot, right? (laughs) I mean, it really is. And, you know, not to make anybody listening nervous, but more or less to just kind of get everybody on the same page and just say, listen, this is common. We're in this together. And however you feel like you need to get through this, just, you know, tell who you need to tell and have those people to comfort you and get you through those times because it is just, it's so common. I wanted you specifically to touch on the whole, I remember sharing this story too, because when I saw this on your Instagram feed, my heart was broken. First of all, I'm so sorry that your story was used in this way because to even be navigating something like this and to even just know more about your situation now, as you just told us, you know, it was a very long and complicated process, which I'm sure was really emotionally tolling and to have to walk through all of that at the same time that you had to deal with this criticism that you essentially killed your fetus by getting the COVID vaccine. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously you, you shared your story very early on that you were pregnant, right? So your community knew very early on that you were pregnant and then you did get the vaccine or you didn't. Was that, was that something made up or? So I did get the vaccine, but it was, I had my DNC after I got the vaccine, but my baby had already passed. Gotcha. So because of the lengthy process of my miscarriage, there was like a big gap, basically. My baby was with me for total of, for 12 weeks, basically. But so what happened was, you know, I tried the Cytotec, that didn't work. I got COVID, was quarantined for 10 days so that they wouldn't do my DNC until I was out of quarantine. I got my vaccine the day before my DNC. So when I posted this stuff on Instagram, I guess if you just scrolled through my timeline and didn't actually read captions, you may have thought that I got the vaccine and the next day I had a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. But that's not the truth of what happened. My baby stopped growing at six weeks. And I didn't have my DNC until technically I was 12 weeks pregnant. So I basically woke up one day to this post on Facebook that one of my Facebook community members 
let me know about a picture of me getting the vaccine and then a picture of me, you know, basically before my DNC and saying like that I killed my baby. Oh my gosh. This is the kind of stuff that really oh, it makes me sweat. You're making me sweat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I want to run through this timeline too really quick. So everybody kind of gets it. You had your first ultrasound at six weeks. That's when they said baby looks like it's about two weeks behind. And then after that appointment, you actually got COVID, like COVID the infection. Right. Right. That was after your baby already wasn't growing. And then at eight weeks, you were supposed to get your follow-up ultrasound, but that was difficult because you had had COVID. So then you had the follow-up ultrasound, right? And then they gave you Cytotec after that. Mm -hmm. And then what, probably a couple weeks later, you were still bleeding and you needed to have that DNC and you had gotten your COVID vaccine right prior to getting the DNC. Yeah, because... You can get your COVID vaccine after having COVID. You just have to be outside of that 10-day window, basically, and recovered from your symptoms. And I really never had symptoms. So I wanted to get my vaccine as soon as possible. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I want, that's, a, that's important, too. I think that that's awesome because a lot of people have been asking, you know, if I've had COVID, do I still get the vaccine? So I think that's an awesome example of that. Then, okay, so then you wake up. Okay, you wake up. And you see that, do you, did you even find out who the original poster was? For no, I was, ne- yeah, I was never able to find out who posted it originally, but I found it on several different well-known conspiracy theory <laughs> type sites, basically, that both have, you know, Facebook pages and Instagram pages. And these pages have actually both since been taken down. They have backup pages. But yeah, due to lots of people reporting them, they've they've actually been taken down. Because my case is not the only case of, obviously, right. people being targeted like this. Several people have unfortunately gone through this experience. So I basically woke up, saw the picture, was first just super angry that anyone would do this. And... And I was just hurt because I was starting to recover from everything that had happened and emotionally, you know, starting to feel better and kind of move on. And then this came up, you know, and it just completely set me back emotionally. You know, I was just crying and couldn't believe that people just don't care about other people's feelings. They just want to promote their agenda and do whatever it takes, really. But then, you know, I started contacting all the people who I saw reposting it because that's where these things go so viral. It's like you could post something that's false and then it's shared like 17,000 times. There's no way to trace every time that post has been reposted and to get them all taken down. Once it's out there, it's out there. There's no turning back. So you really have to be careful about things that you're posting on social media and make sure that it's accurate information. That's number one. But the few that I did find myself, I was able to, you know, directly message those people and tell them, you know, the truth about what happened. I said, please go to my timeline on Instagram, actually read my posts, and you'll see exactly what happened and in what order. Or how about they just contact you and say, hey, listen. Or how about you not post about someone's misfortune? (sighs) anyway, you know, to begin with. So (laughs) it's so it's wild to me how social media can be used sometimes. And it's so it's so unhealthy. And yeah, yeah, I mean, when I saw that, I was just so horrified for you. And again, I'm just so sorry that that happened, because navigating that is so hard. 
So let's address the whole miscarriage being tied to the vaccine, because I know there are so many reading a lot online. And I can even link in the show notes as well, just the information that we talk about here. But when I had last checked the CDC, which was last week, the incidence of miscarriage in the vaccine population versus the general population, it was not at any increased risk of miscarriage with those that are receiving the vaccine, right? Correct. Yeah. In fact, uh, VAERS, which is the um, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, the baseline risk of miscarriage is 26%. That's in the general population who's not been vaccinated. And then in the women who had gotten vaccinated, it was only 15%. Right. And to just kind of bounce off that, I think sometimes people will say, well, not everybody reports to VAERS, but that's fine because there's still an 11% difference there, right? That we can we can definitely say, okay, listen, it was 15% and VAERS, but it's 26% in the general population. So we can assume if there's not a lot, all of are reported, right, there's a lot of room to make up that 11%, but it's still not an increased risk. You know, if we were seeing an increased risk, we would look at VAERS and it would be, you know, 30%, 35%. If this was something that was commonly happening in the population that was being vaccinated. You know, so I think, yeah, like just making sure that people understand that is, is great. So anything else you want to add on that? Yeah, I mean, just 100%. There's no increased risk of miscarriage with the vaccine that we know thus far, right? Like, I mean, data is always ever evolving. But we have really good data now. I mean, the number of people who have been vaccinated is huge. And people sometimes want to compare this vaccine to other vaccines, but you almost can't, right? Because I don't know, maybe there is, and then I'd have to do the research on it, but this large amount of people being vaccinated at one time, because I mean, certainly not in my lifetime. I mean, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think there's ever been such a large population being vaccinated all at once like this. So yeah, we are gathering so much data every single day and I know people want a lot of answers to a lot of different things, but that data is coming, you know, for things that we don't know yet. And so far it's looking really good. Yeah. And I think like this is, this is really under like a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. If there was anything that came up that was worrisome. It would be out in two seconds. (laughs) It would be. It would be out in two seconds. I mean, with all the the platforms out there today and like, gosh, there's one thing that goes wrong. It is out in the universe in like what? Yeah, you'll know about it. (laughs) You'll know about it a hundred percent. Oh my gosh. And then they'll have to be pedaling backwards to try to take it back, you know? And I think that that's the thing with medicine too, is, you know, you have to be willing to admit when data changes, right? Like, yeah, if it does, it does. But right now, everything looks very, very positive. Yes, agreed. All right. So do you have anything else you want to add to either your experience or anything before we jump into the community questions? I don't think so. I think we're good. All right, let's do it. Okay, so I think we already addressed this one. Is there anything I can do prior to getting pregnant to decrease risk of miscarrying? So we kind of already touched on that. Mm-hmm. Be healthy. <laughs> yeah, be healthy and, you know, getting your regular checkups, that sort of thing. And you know what I think we could touch on here is, you know, the 
standard and, you know, you're in family medicine and I'm in emergency medicine. So, you know, I, I don't know much about this, but from what I've heard from friends is that, you know, you won't get a official workup until you've had three or more miscarriages in a row. Mm-hmm. And I know people get really, have you heard anything different or? Yeah, that's pretty much the standard. You could always push for a workup if it's something that you're really concerned about, but it's usually not offered until that point because with three or more miscarriages, then you're definitely at higher risk. And there may be something like a clotting disorder or genetic disorder that you want to look into. But before that, it's kind of just like the standard average. Right. And so because miscarriage is so common, that's why they, you know, I don't know why it was three, but that, that is the, stem. there might even be a reason behind that, but the standard is, you know, after your third, they would do the workup. Okay. So if you do have a miscarriage, what is the safest and best time to start trying again? So this is going to vary so much, right? Depending on your personal experience, you know, whether you're miscarrying later or earlier, right? For sure. But the truth is, Barring anything specifically medically related, there's no physiological reason to wait at all after a miscarriage. So you can ovulate and get pregnant two weeks after a miscarriage, and that's totally fine and totally safe unless there was some sort of complication, I don't know, like a uterine perforation during your DNC or something scary that your doctor's already informed you about. There's no reason to wait. My doctor during my follow-up appointment, <laughs> she's pretty blunt and I actually like it. She's like, I love that. Michelle, do you want another baby? And I was like, yes, I really do. And she's like, well, you're older. So if you want one, you should probably start trying now. <laughs> and this was after your DNC. Yeah. 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 I mean, she was yeah. like, there's no reason for you to wait. You could just start trying. You don't need to go on birth control. You don't need to, you know, time anything. Just, you know, go for it. So I think as long as you have no medical reason not to start trying and psychologically, obviously, you're ready, then you could just go for it if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And I obviously didn't have the same experience you did, but we did try after. So let's see. After my first miscarriage, we got pregnant on the second cycle after that. And granted, again, I wasn't far as far along as you were, but, and then after, so then I had in my other miscarriage, they are actually separated by a month. So I miscarried and then had a cycle and then miscarried again, and then got pregnant on that next cycle. So yeah, I mean, I had gotten pregnant twice, like back to back. I mean, your cervix is more open. It let, it allows for more, you know, <laughs> opportunity. It's like, come so. on, friends. <laughs> no, but there is definitely some data that after a miscarriage, people do get pregnant faster. And honestly, yeah. I'm not sure why they think the reasoning behind that is, but there is data to show that. Yeah. So, you know, all in all, make sure it's an okay from your, your whoever takes care of you and go for it. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're ready. All right. So what week specifically is your highest risk of miscarriage? Like right after conception. <laughs> like literally right so basically then. the second that the sperm and egg meet, <laughs> that's your highest risk. So it just keeps going down with each day, literally. So, yeah. And I'll I'll touch on this too, because I had myself a chemical pregnancy and it's bizarre because what happens is you miss a day of your period and you're like, okay, let me take a test. And the test is positive. And then I'm one of those people that are 
just kind of like obsessed, right? So I'll take a test every day to make sure the lines oh, get yeah. darker. <laughs> yep, crazy a town over here. And then, so with my first, it was my first miscarriage and I kept checking, kept checking. And the line, this was right at Christmas time, by the way, this is a week before Christmas. I was checking and checking and checking and checking and the line got lighter and lighter and lighter. And I was like, this isn't normal. And, you know, I was telling a couple of people and they're like, oh, you know, it's because maybe you're taking your test and it's like at night and your hormone levels are lower. And, and I was making up every excuse in the book until I started bleeding on Christmas day and miscarried that pregnancy, which lo and behold is something, again, I'm trained more in emergency medicine, but I didn't know about a chemical pregnancy. And so this is essentially when the egg and sperm meet and a lot of things spark up and then all of a sudden it doesn't quite work out. And so you might get that positive pregnancy test and then all of a sudden you could the next day or, you know, next few days afterwards, go to the doctor and have a negative test. And then you're like, wait a second, but I'm not crazy. It was positive, you know? So I think some women can get frustrated with that, but again, called a chemical pregnancy where essentially they don't even call it like a, well, I guess it is a miscarriage, but you know, that's what they call it when it's within that like first week. And that is your highest risk is like in that first week. So I'm totally the same way with the pregnancy tests. And I want to tell everybody out there that you do not have to buy like $25 pregnancy tests at the pharmacy, you can go on Amazon and get a box of a hundred for like 10 bucks. And they're just as accurate. And they're the same thing that we use at the doctor's office when you come in and ask for a test and they're literally like five cents each. So please just go onto Amazon if you want to test 10 times a day, like yes. I do. <laughs> totally agree. Oh my gosh. I was like Looney Tunes. So after my third miscarriage and then I got my pregnancy test was positive with my fourth, right? Mm-hmm. With Maggie, who was just born. Well, not just born. She's just born. And we had a trip planned to Ireland and it was in November. And I had just gotten my positive test like a couple of days prior. And so automatically I'm like, oh my gosh, like maybe I shouldn't be traveling. And what? There's no reason not to travel, Lindsay. Like, what am I talking about? So, but I'm, I'm like worried about everything because of course, just had like all these miscarriages. And right. and so I bring like this box, like you're mentioning <laughs> from Amazon. Yeah. And I'm on the trip every day. I kid you not, once in the morning, once at night, my husband mm-hmm. was like, you have got to stop. And I had them all lined up on the bathroom yep. sink counter. <laughs> Like making sure the line was darker every day. I kid you not. I mean, this is like I can one hundred percent relate. Yeah, and my husband would be like, I, "I just went in the bathroom. Like, what are you doing? It's like you're you're like it's like a collection of like twenty tech. What are you doing? And I'm like, I just want to make sure. And he's like, What would you do if it wasn't like what? Right. There's nothing's going to change. And I'm like, I know, but it's just like. And I think it's one of those things is once you have a miscarriage, like it's just, mm-hmm. you, it's just kind of like ingrained in you. And I think that could lead us to the next question, which is how do you reduce that fear and anxiety associated with miscarriage and, and then trying again? Because I know you said you want to try again. And how do you kind of get over that? Or do you? You know, this is really hard. I mean, I think it's okay to be anxious and kind of expected to be anxious. And I don't think you necessarily have to fight those feelings unless it's truly interfering with your day-to-day and becoming pathological. But I think taking two pregnancy tests a day is totally fine and (laughs) a normal (laughs) reaction. But, you know, once you have a miscarriage, I feel like that just happy, uh, unfearful pregnancy almost, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's really hard. 
Yeah. But I also think as a mom, <laughs> you're you're anxious in, in one way or another at every point. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But I, I think, you know, after having a miscarriage, it's really hard to go back to being completely normal and not worrying whatsoever. I just think that that's probably not something to strive for, you know, but to know that after you have a miscarriage, the majority of people, I think it's like 80% go on to have a totally normal, healthy pregnancy. But I think it's also important to know when that anxiety is becoming too much and really affecting you and your life that, you know, either turn to your friends, your family, or to get professional help, talk to a therapist someone that you could share your feelings with or, you know, a community like, you know, we have on Instagram, those people, like, they they helped me so, so much through this. So just reaching out and, you know, knowing that you're not alone and knowing that these feelings are completely normal. <laughs> I mean, you lost a baby. It's really hard to get over that. So. Yeah, I will echo what you said. I think, you know, like, there's really, I mean, there's nothing really that helped me get through, you know, I just was anxious and and fearful, but at the same time had to just trust in that, you know, if this is, you know, meant to be and, you know, we're faith-based over here. So we rely a lot on, you know, God and all of that. And so we're just praying a lot. And if that's not you, just finding something that really you know, helps ground you, whether that's listening to music or going and working out, you know, I mean, as long as you were working out prior to pregnancy, you can absolutely do exactly what you were doing prior during pregnancy. So if you get pregnant and you're like, how, what am I going to do with all of this anxiety? Well, go for a long walk, go for a run. If you're typically a runner, I mean, those types of things really, really help a lot with stress and help you to just think and just, you know, help to just regulate everything. So how long does a pregnancy test remain positive after a miscarriage? Like how long did yours, did you check? Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, The rest of that box of pregnancy tests. (laughs) But my doctor also had me come back to follow up and she did a blood HCG and it was negative. It was at two weeks afterwards. So it could be anywhere from two to six weeks before it goes back to normal. And this can be highly variable. So it can depend on how high your HCG was to begin with, how far along your pregnancy was at the time of the miscarriage. Also, if there are like retained products of conception, like I had, it's not going to go down. So that could be one thing to let you know that maybe the miscarriage hasn't been completed. So that's one thing that your doctor will definitely check for you if you're not doing it yourself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, let's see. We addressed chemical pregnancy, early miscarriage. And I just wanted to mention on that topic. So, you know, chemical pregnancy is basically before an ultrasound can confirm a pregnancy. So that's, you know, between four and five weeks, a gestational set can be seen on ultrasound. So prior to that, it's considered a chemical pregnancy, but this is still a miscarriage. This is still very real and is still very much a loss. And then after that point where the gestational set can be seen on ultrasound, that's considered a miscarriage the way that we normally think about it. And then after 20 weeks, then the loss of a child is considered a stillbirth. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that kind of clarifying those differences. Are miscarriage rates higher or the same for IVF? Do you know? 
So this is also tricky as, you know, apparently everything is, but um, (laughs) medicine in general. Yeah. So some studies have shown yes, and some studies have shown no. So wait, let me see what this says. So in 2003, a study found that women who underwent IVF and got pregnant with a single child miscarried almost 22% of the time, which at that time was a slightly elevated risk. But also you have to think with IVF, like, are you implanting a single embryo or multiple embryos? Because if you're implanting multiple, then that's an increased risk in itself. So again, there are lots of factors that play into this. And also, like, what is the reason for the infertility? Is it something structural? Is it a clotting disorder? So all those other risk factors that we talked about can play into these statistics as well. Yeah, it just sounds really tricky because obviously if you're getting IVF, there were some, you know, there's some unknown issue or maybe a known issue to begin with. Correct, yeah. Yeah, okay, gotcha. All right, let's talk about this. Let's talk about support during a miscarriage and maybe even you personally what did you feel like you wanted to hear from people? What do you feel like you wanted from people? Was it like you wanted people to check up on you? Was it you wanted maybe a dinner brought over to you? Or what did you want for support? I think that this definitely varies personally. I like when people shared their stories with me because it really made me feel not alone um, and that I wasn't you know, the only one that had gone through this or will go through this. Um, a lot of people shared things that they did to help them kind of recover, whether it was, you know, exercising or church or journaling. Actually, my my real estate agent gave me this journal for just like basically life after loss. And I thought that that was so sweet and so thoughtful. They had also been through a loss. And that journal has really helped me. Um, and so if I ever encounter a friend, which I'm sure I will in the future who has a miscarriage, I'll probably end up getting that for them. Some things that people said that were not helpful were, you know, it was for the best. You could try again. There was probably something genetically wrong with your baby. And so your body, you know, quote, did its job, unquote. I mean, these things are just not helpful at all. Yeah. But I mean, also coming from someone who in the past also didn't know what to say to my friends who were going through miscarriage, I know that it could be hard to know what to say. So I don't fault anyone for saying any of these things because you're obviously not trying to hurt somebody. Right. But I think it is something to think about ahead of time before you're put in the situation of supporting someone through miscarriage. Like, what would you do? What could you say? So really, I think the only thing you could truly say is, I'm sorry. Sorry that you're going through this. How did you feel? Yeah. Or even just being like totally transparent and saying, listen, I, I have absolutely no idea what yeah. to say, but like, I'm here for you. Like whatever you need, you know, like, yeah. and sometimes I feel like that's the best way to handle a situation, no matter what it is, regardless if it's a miscarriage, it's just like, Hey, listen, I really want to be here for you. I have absolutely no idea how to do that. Like, please tell me if I can help in any way or, you know, like that's really, really helpful. I feel like. Yeah, I think also like this is something I learned in early motherhood is sometimes it's hard to tell people how to help you. So, you know, if you're asking someone say like, hey, can I, you know, bring you dinner or can I come over and do your dishes for you? Yeah. That kind of offers like either suggestions. or. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm coming like, over. I'd like to do, do something one of these for things. you. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to do something for you. Can I do one of these things? Like, can I order? I your really like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're so right, though, because a lot of the time, I mean, who's going to be like, hey, 
Georgia, can you bring me dinner? It's like, right. you know, yeah. <laughs> so like maybe just saying like, listen, I'm going to be doing something for you. So you can choose one of the four options yeah. and then choose give them four options. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's a great idea. And it could be four totally different random things. So like bringing yeah. dinner, washing dishes, going on a walk with you and then something else, you know, or like, like whatever keeping you your kids so that you can have two hours of complete yeah. alone time to do whatever, you know, like what, yeah. just offer suggestions because if you say to someone, hey, how can I help? They're probably going to be like, I'm fine. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. That's a great idea. All right. Uh, let's see here. Is it normal to have your hormones change after a miscarriage? Well, yes. I mean, while your HCG is dropping, all of your hormones are quickly returning You know, back to quote unquote normal. And so you're definitely going to experience some hormonal shifts and swings just like you do after delivery of your baby. So yeah, I'd say yes, it's normal to have them change. Yeah. And I mean, I know, I mean, this wasn't after my miscarriage, but yeah, I can definitely attest to the fact that my periods after, like I said, I think I'd mentioned this after my third, they were like wonky. I mean, I never, I've never had my period come like every 20 days. And I was like going crazy. Like the second my period would end, I'm like going back into PMS. I swear. I was like, this is (laughs) This is miserable. (laughs) It was, it was so crazy, but I mean, our bodies are so cool and that we can grow life and there's so much that goes into that. So, yeah, I mean, there are so many feedback loops in our body and there's also so much that we don't know, you know, like people, I feel like people think that medicine is this all knowing thing, but Mm -hmm. the human body is just absolutely so complex and so incredible and it's impossible to know everything. And while we're learning things, all the time, there's still so much more to learn. Yeah. So is there anything that else we could touch on while we're chatting about this subject? What do you think? I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Right? I feel like we need to like put together like a miscarriage support group after this. I know. People chat, (laughs) you know, because it really, I really do feel like it is the one thing that really helps the most is just talking to other people that have been through it, you know? Yeah, it's really, really helpful to know that you're not alone. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to ask you two questions. And these are questions that I ask all of my interviewees. And the first is, if you could give, it could be about anything. It doesn't need to be about the topic that we talked about today. If you could give advice to a mom, what would it be? One piece of advice. (laughs) It's so funny because I literally just said this, but... You are not alone. And this thing called motherhood, you're not alone. We've all cried in a heap on the floor for absolutely no reason that we can think of. We all get frustrated. We all feel unexplainable joy. We all get angry. We all yell. We all love our children. You know, so much it hurts sometimes, but yet sometimes we all want some alone time. So, you know, you're not alone in any feeling that you're feeling. Yes, I love that. And then the second one is if there was one dinner that you could make for your whole family that was quick, easy, and that everybody would eat, what would it be? Okay. I am like the ultimate slacker when it comes to 
cooking. <laughs> so this is going to be a good one. Literally. Pizza. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Lindsay, I'm not even kidding. Literally, it's not even like the box mac and cheese. It would be like the plastic tub mac and cheese that you put in the microwave for three minutes and it's done. Like, that's it. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I enjoy cooking, but I, <laughs> I do not execute it very well. <laughs> I mean, hey, we all have our, you know, our... <laughs> <laughs> things that we're good at and things yeah, that we're not yeah. good at. I just have kind of decided that it's fine. My kids are going to grow up. I ate a lot of Pop-Tarts myself when I was growing up, and I think I turned out perfectly fine. So um, <laughs> how about – so you're kind of we're, – um, we're in the same age range. Uh-huh. Little Debbie snacks. Okay. Oh, my God. My house was full of yes, Little Debbie. Every I look version, at Little yeah. Debbie now, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I, like, lived off of, like, the Christmas tree Little Debbie oh, snacks. Oh, yes. And then, the, like, the pecan The yellow toy. ones. Which were those? With the yellow ones with the sprinkles oh, on top? They were, like, lemon-flavored. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, like, that is what I would eat. And, yeah, so. Yeah, I think of the things I ate life. when I was growing up. And, you know, of course, I advocate for a healthy, nutritious diet. But you know what? If you can't do that all the time for your kids, you are still a good mom. And your kids and you are still going to be fine. Like, yes. I'm a healthy weight. I'm a become a physician like I have a family I think I'm a successful human being and I ate lots of little Debbie (laughs) (laughs) little Debbie's for dinner it is (laughs) oh that's the best answer oh man everybody else is like really trying to think you know and you're a little over here well just the plastic Mm -hmm. mac and cheese cheese. yeah works but I'm definitely a craft and not a Velveeta girl I don't like Velveeta either yeah, my husband likes Velveeta, and there's just, I don't know, I question him a little bit because of it. Yeah, yeah, you're like, hmm, who did I marry? Suspect. <laughs> Suspect. Oh, that's really funny. All right, well, it was really great chatting with you, and I'm so happy that you felt comfortable opening up and sharing your experience with everybody. I think it'll be really helpful to those that might be navigating the same type of experience. Yeah, 100%. If anyone has any questions, like literally feel free to personally DM me. I will answer you. I just want everyone going through this to feel seen and heard and not alone. I love that. All right. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, Michelle. I appreciate it. You got it, girl. See ya. Bye. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.